the serious tv drama podcast i'm scott and joining me this week the illusion of justice to me just being disillusioned it's brian hey brian hey scott it's great to be back good to see you and excited to talk about these two great shows i am excited to be back both just recording a podcast in general and especially recording with you last time we got together i believe was right around the holidays back in december so it's it's been a little while been a little while but on our agenda for how many years now <laughs> we were always saying when perry mason comes back we're going to do th- that season because i feel in many ways um, when we recorded season uh, our podcast for season one of Perry Mason, I personally feel it was kind of a turning point for the podcast altogether. Um, number one, I made a lot of audio improvements <laughs> during that season, and just I just changed the way I went about things and the way the podcast goes about things. So I I am fond of the show just because I feel it it kind of raised the level of our podcasting and also the chance to talk about a show about a lawyer with a lawyer, <laughs> you know, I mean, I know better call Saul, but you, that we weren't watching better call Saul for that. We all know that. <laughs> yeah. I, and I think as I recall that time fondly, it, I think that was one of really the first times that you and I sort of ventured off on our own and just did sort of a Scott and Brian thing. And, uh, because I'd been doing Better Call Saul and stuff like that. And you and I had done Legion, which went away, and The Americans. But to be dedicated to a show from its inception and start with that show and follow it through a, a whole first season, that was sort of a new thing. And uh, and we both found it, you know, it came out of nowhere. We really didn't know much about it um, and really enjoyed the first season and, and, you know, looking forward to doing this season. Yeah. Right, because we are here to kick off our podcasting coverage of Perry Mason Season 2. And as you kind of alluded to in our, the introduction, should let everyone know they need to stick around. Because after we finish chatting about the most cynical lawyer since Frank Galvin... Wait, is that... By the way, is that too obscure a reference? Okay. Frank Galvin out there, just Google it, and then you can add a great movie to your queue. Anyway, beyond our musings about Mason here, this week we are also going to talk about a series that just... Today, and by today, I mean Thursday, March 9th, 9th, March 9th, that just today completed its first season. And it's a series I've been jonesing to talk about for the longest time. And I'm talking about the Peacock series, Poker Face. But first things first. And on this podcast, at least for the next few weeks, hint, hint, the first series we're going to be discussing is Perry Mason. And we're going to be talking about the season premiere, also known as Chapter 9. Now, I like that we kind of picked up pretty quickly that it picks up several months after Season 1 left off. And one of the things I thought was very well laid out pretty much throughout the entire premiere, not just the very opening scenes, was the way they were painting a fairly quick picture of where our three principal characters are in their respective life journeys on the series. And by the three, obviously, I 
Hopefully, obviously, I'm referring to Della Street, uh, Paul Drake, and of course, Perry Mason himself. So let's, ladies first, let's start off with Della Street, because when we see her again, we know within a minute she's asserting her position. She's reminding the older viewers that perhaps, once again, this isn't Adele Street of the books and TV series you, you remember from years past. She is not a secretary. In fact, she's hired a secretary. She, at this point, it becomes clear she is the glue and business-minded person at the law practice. But as we also see her almost accidentally voice an objection in court in a later scene. It's a reminder of where a woman stood in terms of the law profession back in the 1930s. And of course, between her encounter with another woman, this mildly mysterious woman with the nearly over-the-top name of Anita St. Pierre, come on, as well as her conversation with, shall we say, a similarly closeted Hamilton Berger towards the end of the episode, it's really a deft and quick summation of the complications and obstacles of not merely just being a woman, but being a gay woman almost 90 years ago. Yeah, uh, the thing I like about Della's uh, story, um, you know, she sort of was the competence holding things down, uh, both for EB and not EB. Uh, yeah. Oh, is it EB? Yeah, yeah, you got it. Okay. It was okay. EB. Um, and, and for Perry, she sort of was the strong hand that, that held things together. We see she's gone beyond that, but is still sort of, if you will, the managing partner, uh, making sure things get done. And we learn, we learn right away that Perry has, uh, uh, shifted towards civil practice, something he obviously isn't super fond of. And Della is the one working hard to keep the bills paid and, looking at the books and the finances. Uh, and, you know, we see that that her story, she's advanced, but hit sort of, if you will, the the ceiling that women face then with uh, with the restrictions on them. And uh, but but out of the gate, I mean, just about the show in general, let me say and and we'll talk, I'm sure, about things that happen throughout the, the show. Um the thing I loved right away that brought me back to loving it in season one was the beautiful title sequence. And it, it took me back to a time of television that I think it's fitting that we're going to talk about poker face, that both of these shows have a look that takes me back to a different time in my life when, you know, TV wasn't prestige and, uh, but, but it was pretty damn good. And, and holds a fond place in my memory. So I, I love the way it started, and, and I enjoyed seeing where, where Della starts this season. One last thing that just occurred to me, to, to if I can make one last comment about Della, um, so I don't think we, I ever said this when we discussed her in season one, um, but it just kind of it popped into my head when you, when you mentioned EB. So it's, it's off the cuff here. Um, it's kind of interesting because – Beyond the fact that she's, you know, the, the very different sort of woman that she's that she is portrayed as in this uh, version of Perry Mason, but I also think it's interesting to note that her in season one, and obviously the bulk of season one, Eb was there and still alive, but to a certain extent, she almost because if we look at all, all these characters as forming so, some sort of you know pseudo family, so to speak, right? 
she was the daughter looking after looking after her father's interests and 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 trying to help him and guide him and then eventually have to bury him um with EB with Perry it's interesting because I think she wants it to be on more of an even keel, like a sibling kind of thing. And her frustration comes when it feels like she's now playing more of a mother, where she's the one who has to take care of things. He's being the, in, he's being insolent and about, and, and, and silly about things when she wants to like take care of business. And I think, and I think, and I think as the series, episodes will progress and probably maybe by the very next one once perry's head is back in the game i think that will probably make that relationship become more one on equal footing like like brother and sister rather than mother to son i don't know i'm just kind of kind of going crazy here but it just it just occurred to me when you mentioned that no no and i think you raise a good point i thought one of the one of the sort of ingenious uh, lines that's very subtle in the in the first episode is when we see him riding the motorcycle and we learn that he got that as payment from a client and she correctly says like you know well that doesn't do me any good like if you accept payment from a client you know of a motorcycle you ride what what good does that do the firm it doesn't bring anything in which means it doesn't contribute to her um exactly he, that that's an example of him doing something which was kind of like like a, something a brash teenager would do, not, not not a rational, you know, like-minded adult like she would appreciate working with at this point. Right. So let's then skip over to Paul Drake, who we learn has not had much in the way of uh, paying jobs since Perry, as you mentioned, decided to pursue civil cases as, as opposed to criminal. Um, yes, there may be the odd job thrown his way, like, for example, snapping pictures inside the office of a supermarket manager, but clearly gigs are few and far between. Now, again, I love when you can do something as briefly as possible and tell us so much in some really nice and simple, succinct strokes, we get a taste of the Drake's extended family and how his marriage has really become a true partnership and really how forward thinking and smart his wife is because she's the one who decides to invite Perry to the family birthday get together, which is what leads to Strickland showing up with a job offer that as far as, you know, the DA Hamilton Berger is concerned, really can only be handled by someone of Drake's, well, not just his talent, but his, his skin color. Yeah. And, uh, the the sort of the community sense that you get that Paul Drake and his family, you know, now have this uh, community around them and uh, they're they're struggling. But his wife is the practical one that says you should have thought of inviting him. I shouldn't basically I shouldn't have had to be the one to do it. Um, but th- that's a That's a nice step for his wife's character which we then see further played out that she goes with him to the hotel to help him do part of, of what he does on this, let's say curious venture um, that, that I have questions if Hamilton Berger really is the one that, that wants that done Um, because they're, you know, do they really want to protect Perkins or do they just want to find out who Perkins is meeting with to later, you know, 
basically shut down all the support for him or arrest his followers, arrest him. Um, but it, it's an interesting place to put Paul Drake back into the story. Um, and I really enjoyed his arc in season one. And then I think we see other characters, as you said, other characters from last season, the corrupt cop, you know, makes a, a return. We see him later with Brooks, Mc, Brooks McCutcheon. Some of the players from last season are back in different new places and in interesting ways. So, um, yeah, I'll be interested to see what they do with Drake and see how long the story sort of of this burgeoning, you know, I, I don't know if this person will be portrayed as a civil rights, a burgeoning civil rights leader or just, you know, a pillar of the black community or what they're doing with that story, but see Paul Drake in that and see how that may come in line with the story was, was it, it was, a, it was a good start to put him in a new direction and doing something he's good at. Yeah. My impression is the, the person that he's been tasked with um, keeping tabs on um, uh, has his thumb in things that are both legal and illegal. So I, I don't, so, I, so he may very well be a very outspoken person in the community and may even have a facade, for example, of some form of a, of a civil rights person. Although how much we would see that in the 1930s is debatable. I don't know my history very well, but so perhaps there, there were such, but it seems to me there's a lot more going on with him. So uh, I, I, I do find it interesting to think that it might not be, it might, ne- it might not necessarily be at Berger's behest. Although I, I want to give, I, I, because I like the Strickland character so much, I kind of want to give him the benefit of the doubt that he, he is doing this on, on, on Berger's orders, but there's still maybe things going even beyond Berger for that matter. Um, right. When you, when you were first um, outlining that and the, and the potential of the situation, I mean, you start thinking about when we would hear things about how J. Edgar Hoover was, you know, keeping tabs on Martin Luther King and, and all that sort of thing. And, and, and pretty much anyone involved in the civil rights movement. Absolutely. I just didn't, again, I might've just misunderstood or misheard. I just didn't get the sense that that was what this, or maybe this character is just more openly. Yeah, that's not all that I am. You know, he's he. You know, he he's someone who wields power, even if it's in you know the quote unquote mi- minority community. But that would that alone, whether there's crime attached to it or not, would worry people in positions of power, especially in white America. I would say. So I am curious where it's going to go. I'm also curious that. Because usually, and what we saw in season one, and what I expect to see in season two, and and whatever, usually even when you have story threads that seem unrelated, they tend to eventually intertwine and and are connected to each other. So it'll be interesting. And we haven't gotten to the well, other than what happened at the very end, we haven't seen how that murder case is going to unfold beyond the the promo the, pro, the promo for the the future episodes of Perry Mason. So I'm kind of curious. That's where I'm really curious where they're going to go with that story. And one last thing I'll say about Paul Drake, which I find really interesting: Perry Mason in previous incarnations, and by that I mean the original books. And then in even the television, the long running television series, Perry Mason's the lawyer. And he would have someone do the legwork who would act as, 
you know, almost like a private eye or the whatever. It was very similar to, you know, the Nero Wolf books where, you know, Nero Wolf wasn't running around town doing stuff. It was, it was his, it was his, his right hand man, Archie, who did all the, well, did all the legwork running around. But it was interesting when, when this series debuted at season one, up until the last, literally the last, oh, I said literally, there it is. Uh, <laughs> really the last two episodes, maybe. Perry was one, the one acting as kind of like the so, sort of pseudo private eye working on behalf of, uh, of the law firm. And I think the transition here is on one hand, that's what Paul Drake's kind of going to be doing. But I think my guess, just from the, the, what I feel, what we've seen already, and the way they're presenting Perry Mason, I just think he's, it looks to me like he's going to continue to be a far more active lawyer <laughs> out in the field than maybe one would be accustomed to, at least, you know, we, either be real life or at least TV series wise. I mean, he's going to be a bit more than a Matlock here, so to speak. <laughs> Oh yeah, he he's he's going to get his hands dirty. There there's no doubt and you can see uh from the coming episodes montage. I mean, he he's not going to be far removed from the action. Uh but but I think what that alludes to is sort of what you were talking to about Della that this season they're all sort of moving into new positions and that Perry's going to become sort of, you know, the senior partner uh, and become EB in a sense, Della's going to hopefully try to become like the alkalite, like Perry was in season one. And Paul will be the third member of the team, basically the full-time investigator, uh, maybe by the end of the season. And we'll have that core that we know of Perry Mason, um, that, that the Drake and Mason core with the added piece of Della will basically be like a fully functional, right. you know, law firm, and moved into their place with their defined roles. Yeah, and, and I feel also for for the nature of a television series, and once you get outside of something like a Law and Order kind of procedural kind of a thing, um, where the, the roles are so clearly delineated and defined, where you know, so you have the you have the first half of I guess the police that they won't do the quote unquote legwork, detective work, whatever, and then the second half is okay, and now the lawyers do their thing. Um, I wonder if going along with what you just said. It, and and also because they're really doing everything they can to make this different than those previous versions I mentioned of Perry Mason, it becomes a more collaborative effort on all fronts. So there, um, so there may be aspects where Perry and I think there will be. I, I mean, I know there will be. I'm not going to say I think Perry Mason is going to be an active character. He's not just going to be you know doing briefs and and putting pieces of paper on a wall and making connections. He's going to be he's going to get he's probably like every PI, you know, he's going to get beaten up a bunch of times if he isn't beating himself up like you know having motorcycle accidents. But but Paul Drake that that's probably why you have Paul Drake working on this other case. So right. that way that way there's t- he he might be busy working on that so then Perry has to go and do that, that kind of a thing is happening as well. I, I mean I mean again I'm very excited about it um because I just think it becomes a nice kind of melding and I'm I'm also curious to see um and how far they can and will go um over the course of this season and and if they should even get any future seasons and you never know we, we don't know if they'll get more than another another season who knows. But will there come a time where Della will actually be able to practice law? I'm I'm very curious about that. I I, yeah. I love the idea of them. That's where I think that's where that trajectory is eventually going to be headed. I 
have not done my research before this podcast to know um, the history of women practicing law at that point in time. Um, you might know it better than I do from because of your own, you know, well, you are an actual lawyer. Um, so I don't want to make assumptions one way or the other in this. So, but I'm just going to go by her character on this series. That is an interesting quest for her for, you know, for, for both, you know, accomplishment and acceptance. So I'm kind of, which again is so much more than the Della streets of the past, which is not to knock those versions, but this is 2023 now, and we're going to be making Della street a far more, um, active, uh, character here than she ever was before. And I'm all for it. That actress is phenomenal in that part. Oh, she's, as she's well, she's wonderful. And, and I will say there, there's two things that, that, you know, hearing you talk that, that made me reflect on. And one is, I think Perry by will have to be more uh, involved if for no other reason than if we look at this time period, there's just places Paul Drake can't go. I mean, you know, like like because of the reality of the time, if a black guy showed up in a suit somewhere, people aren't going to talk or he's not going to get in the door, quite, quite frankly. Um, But uh, as far as as Della, you know, I I think at that time that there weren't strict prohibitions in some places and that there were, you know, trailblazing women lawyers. The problem was not so much even their ability or maybe the, the keeping them out, but the problem was, and it's still a problem women face is that, you know, a a lot of people, if they're going to hire a law firm, want their lawyer to be a man. Um, And, you know, it's, it's just sort of a, a sexist thing that I, th- I think follows into modern time. But you can imagine in the 1930s, you know, a, a businessman coming in, if he can hire, uh, you know, a white man or a white woman, he's probably going to hire a white man. Um, so now the the great thing I think they do with her character is you do get a sense from that trial that she is pretty sharp on the law already. That that maybe maybe as far as the nuts and bolts of the law goes, she's even better than Perry. Perry's a good orator and is good on his feet and sort of, you know, practically um, can can do all that stuff really, really well. But as far as, you know, knowing the law itself, the rules of evidence, things like that, they give you a hint that maybe she's really, really good at that. Right. I, I would I would finish by saying I, I, I feel between the two, um and and this is probably what what will eventually I mean it's it's too soon in his quote unquote career to say it, but because Perry Mason does become I mean, whatever version you're gonna do, Perry Mason's a legendary lawyer character for a reason. Right. Um so what we're looking at at this stage is um, she may be someone who already understands and knows the basics, you know, paint by numbers kind of thing. He's already, as we, as we see in these courtroom scenes and, and, and her reaction to him, he already goes outside the box. He's doing his own thing. He's, he's, he's already, I mean, it's a weird way to phrase it when it's, when we're talking about a lawyer, although we probably would have referred to Saul Goodman or Jimmy McGill this way a couple times as well. He's already being an artist, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, he, he he's he's really good at the thing he's really good at is digesting a bunch of stuff and putting it in a way that 
people don't expect or that is super compelling. And that, you know, the scene in the courtroom where she stops him and they prepared something in a moment of hearing something or seeing something, he has really good, good instincts and insight is what I would say in, in those moments. But so, so maybe we should talk about him now. Yeah, thank, I, I, I was going to do it a few minutes ago, but then I, <laughs> then I thought of something even better. So I was like, ah, we can, let, let's stick with Paul for a little longer. Yes, of course, we do have Perry Mason himself to talk about. Now, you know, you know first, I'm going to dip a toe to into the scene when we first see Perry Mason in the series, because it goes to something that I was already referencing earlier in the podcast, but now I'm going to use the actual phrase I've used many times on many previous podcasts. It's something I admire when I see it done well in either film or television, uh, episode television, and I call it the economy of storytelling. The very first scene with Perry, he's at home, and within less than a minute, we instantly know a number of things. Number one, he's obviously moved off that farm that was by the airstrip, and it, and since we know we already know he's in L.A., so he's clearly in some you know your typical L.A. you know. Luxurious, and yet, because it's the 1930s, so everything looks luxurious in the 1930s, but it's an L.A. apartment. We see that the place is eek at the same time being sparse and yet unkempt. He has not bothered to unpack most of his boxes, which goes to his transitory nature. He has not been one to lay down roots. He's not one to commit to something long-term. He doesn't have a sense of either belonging or permanence. That is something about his character, his personality. Think of it this way. When, such as my co-host here, perhaps even, when most people choose the law profession, it's something they pursue from a fairly young age, I would say, because it's something that they not they they not just want for themselves. It becomes how they identify themselves. They refer to themselves as a lawyer. That's what they wanted to be. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a lawyer. I don't think Perry Mason really ever said that. And at this point in time, I don't know or don't think Perry Mason actually sees himself as a lawyer. You know, we can open this up throughout the conversation here or not. But if you watch what he does, and some of it's what we just referred to, like the un, the very unconventional decisions that he makes, both in the courtroom and in his conversations, until we get to a moment, and I grant you it may be brief, but I'm going to say it's a key, key conversation to tell us all we need to know or should know about Perry Mason. I'm not talking about the conversation he has with Lupe towards the end. Oh, and I was, by the way... I was very shocked to see Lupe even show up. I was not expecting that. I'm talking about the words he exchanges with Hamilton Berger. And, you know, I made a joke about it in our intro, but I'm referring to the illusion of justice conversation. And I thought that was really something significant. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to put a, put a button on that because I feel, I feel like we're going to have a back and forth on it because I, I think we can rewind and fast forward you know, throughout the episode about Perry, about, about, you know, all these things. But I, I, I know that's towards the end, but I thought that was such an important and interesting conversation. It also gave us everything we need to know about Hamilton Berger, who, who I don't think we're going to see quite as much of throughout this season as obviously as Perry Mason, the lead character. But it, it, it what I thought was fascinating is you have these two men talking about the law. And it's interesting that they both are speaking and are in places of a rather deep-rooted cynicism. But they go about it 
in such a very different way, and it's a different type of cynicism. Hamilton Berger's cynicism is something, it's, he's, it's not that he's jaded, he embraces the cynicism. <laughs> he, he understands it, he's utilizing it. He's almost mocking it. He's mocking the idea of it because it's how he knows how he can get further in, in his own life and, and, you know, to, to gain greater positions of prestige and power despite the things that he has to hide about himself. Whereas Perry, that's more of a hardcore, jaded, you know, disillusionment cynicism, you know, because he comes from a place of righteousness. It's a, he, he has a more of a belief in, you know, the righteous justice, whereas Hamilton Berger is like, well, this is what people tell themselves to make, you know, make them believe. I think, is it, I think in that, it's in that scene, Hamilton Berger, there's a great little bit he goes on about the courthouse, is it the courthouse or the city hall building, whatever. He refers to the building that was just recently built. And, you know, it's, and I imagine it's the building, you know, with all the pillars and the, and the stairs. And it's the kind of thing, it was, it was built within just the last few years. Because, you know, in L.A., most of those buildings were, you know, were being built around that time. It hadn't been around for, you know, 50, 70 years before that, whatever. But it's made to look like it had been a building that had been built, you know, hundreds of years earlier. Because much like Hollywood... Uh, L.A. and Justice, it's all a matter of pretense. And I really loved his insight about that and the fact that Perry gets so angry about it, which is fascinating. Here's a guy who does, as I said just moments ago, he still is not at the point where he identifies himself as a lawyer. But he, we do think he does want to believe in the law. From what he has done, everything from him at, when he fought in the war to, you know, working with EB all the, all that time to what he's doing now. And, you know, I think what's, and, and I guess we'll get into it as well. Obviously, what's had such a hor horrific impact on him is what happened after winning that case or getting that case declared a mistrial, which essentially was a win and what happened with, um, Oh gosh, I don't have her name in front of me. Um, it, is, is it Dodson? Was that was that the uh, Emily Dodson? Emily maybe? Dodson. Yeah. What happens with Emily Dodson is what uh, was I'm going to say literally on purpose now. Literally haunting him. <laughs> but that all that adds up to w where Perry is. But like I said, w we had an episode that was a robust hour in length. But I'm going to say those couple minutes outside once you get beyond plotting. And character reintroductions, I thought that was the moment that tells me so much about this character and, and, and this relationship and this show. Um, that, that was for me, I thought that was, to me, that was the key scene. Yeah, that's the, that's the number one scene because I, I think, um, speaking with a little bit of experience, uh, myself, uh, there's nothing to make you cynical as an idealist to run into the grinding gears of the justice system. Um, because often, often what's right doesn't happen. And what should happen is thwarted by the law. Um, and I think Hamilton Berger sees the justice system in the way he describes it. Um, and I give credit to the actor because uh, it was a really interesting take on how to describe how he sees his job, um, which basically is to give the people of bread and circus that, you know, th that they're satisfied enough 
to stay within the fabric of society, that you give them enough to, to hold society together, right? And uh, Perry sees it as um, wrong to do it that way and, can, and sees the way the law can be used. And then, then he himself uses the law to bludgeon someone and hurt a man. And he sees the, the man's wife and family and sees the real cost um, behind the illusion and uh, him smarting from that and sort of ruminating on it and getting mad. Now, and I think probably the, one of the, the curious fallout of that is, is Perry storms off and Dell is able to have a perfectly, you know, easy conversation in many ways. She fits in with that system more than Perry um, because illusion in her and Hamilton's world is important because they also have to maintain illusions for their own protection and they're comfortable and they share that in common and they share a drink and, you know, are perfectly cordial while Perry, Perry storms off angry. And I think at that point may have been when he headed to the farmhouse and said, yeah. you know, there's no, of all the places I least want to be, this is the one I, I I'm, you know, the most okay being however he said it. But, um, but I think, what we're seeing in the in his disillusion in that civil trial, the the criminal case where you feel like you have an innocent client, win or lose, that's a just cause taking away a man's livelihood over dollars and um, and a delicious you know heel turn by Sean a- Sean Aston here as you know the greedy shopkeeper um, and sort of showing you know if you have a client who. Uh, wants to do something and can you use the law against someone and you're willing to facilitate that you can. Uh, and I think that that really left a bad taste in his mouth. Right. It's interesting because I think Perry would have, especially when he switched from criminal to civil, but he still felt I'm going to do what I can to fight for the little guy. And here he's steamrolling over the little guy on behalf of this guy who, um, have we cursed yet on this podcast? Because there's no way I got, I got I got I got I got to throw a curse in here right now. Sean Aston's character, uh, Sonny Grease, I think is, which is great, <laughs> great name, by the way. Um, he's a piece of shit. <laughs> and I love that, that they did that. And I'm fascinated because I took a look on, uh, back on the old IMDb there. He's in the entire season. So I'm kind of curious. Wait. This is going to be a running thing with this character. I'm just curious. I mean, again, my feeling is all threads eventually intertwine, intertangle, however you want to say it. How does that get? <laughs> because at this point, why would we still be involved with that case anymore? I don't think we would be. But I looked him up. He's listed eight episodes, all eight episodes. So I'm like, okay, I'm fascinated. Um, I, and again, it seems like most of the time when we see Sean Aston, I mean, I can think of a few playing a bad guy once or twice. I think it was, wasn't he a bad guy briefly on 24 a million years ago, I think. But generally speaking, we don't think of him that way. We think, right. of, we think of Lord of the Rings. We think, of, well, he was so nice in that season of, was it Stranger Things? And it's like, yeah. oh, and he got killed. Oh, spoiler. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a good casting choice, really, oh. because, huh. because they also flip the expectation. You start the case with sympathy towards him and, and they start to prove maybe this guy stole his ideas. But then by the end of that scene, you're like, eh, Perry's probably going to win and he probably shouldn't. This guy's a, you know, 
that this guy's kind of a jerk and that guy has a family and he's going to lose everything. And, uh, it, it was a, it was a great, it was a great scene in that, that it, it twisted at the end in, in a really good way to subvert your expectation and, and having Sean Astin be Perry's client helped that, I think. Right. And what was also to go along with that was very, an interesting choice where they could have went in a direction, which I think might have actually been a little bit cliched. Um, and, and maybe something that might have been done, you know, on a series decades earlier. I'm not saying Perry Mason, but, you know, whatever. But that's not, but the, but the writing of things like this is so much better now or so much hmm, more multi layered now, I should say. So if this had been done, whatever. 30, 40, 50, whatever years ago, Perry Mason tanks the case. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it got, it, you know, on purpose. Yeah. Clearly, he does not do this here. At least, at least yeah. unless something changes, but it looks like that is not what's going to happen. It looks like, you know, this guy, he, we're, we're, he's, he's still going for, he has to move forward with nailing this guy to the wall and basically ruining him for the rest of his life, et cetera, whatever. And I just think, I, I just, I love that decision because, it really speaks more to why he's so because because even though he tried to switch to civil from criminal because he thought that would almost be like a safer way to go, and yet you can still be disillusioned. I keep using that word tonight. I'm sorry, or just and it, it becomes now it's not just about the law, it's just about people, about society, yeah. you know. And this isn't and this isn't even a matter of. It's not about gender or race or any of those sort of things. You know, you can say maybe to a certain extent it's about class, but, you know, that's, eh, you know, it's just, how you know, one man, it's, it's a man's inhumanity to another man, to another right. person. And he has to, the fact that he has to still be a wep, a tool for that, and he has to go along with it. Um, it's little wonder that he's in a much worse state of mind when we get towards the end of this episode. Right. And they even drive that home because when he, he takes the settlement offer to him at the store and they have that, you know, like basically it looks like he's having Sonny's radio hour or whatever in the in the store. And he talks to him and, and says, you know, here's the offer. You'll get this. He'll do that. And, you know, Sonny basically says, no, I want to crush him. I want this to through. Are you a fighter? Do you want to you know kill or not kill? And Perry doesn't walk away then. Like he goes back to court, gets the verdict, and the verdict is what he thought. And he predicted when they walked out, he probably just won the case. Um, but because I mean, part of if if your livelihood is doing that, you can't lose because you've got to have the money. And you know he's tied to that system that he he has to make money for the firm for his own livelihood, and he probably just feels really dirty about it. Right. Really. And, scummy. And, and they 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 make a point of, of making it clear that it's not like the firm is doing extremely well. Right. So right. you can't just do that because you know they're they're barely they're barely, they're barely able to pay for the roof over their head and also to afford the secretary that Della hired, even though she figured we can just afford that, but mm-hmm. nothing more. Now the one let, let let's just uh get to the one other something you also had brought up before, but um go go a little bit more into uh the other major aspect of this episode, which is introducing uh another a new set of characters which is gonna be part of the what's gonna be the case 
um, moving from like the next episode on, and that's the McCutcheons. Um, mainly, we meet the the son. Uh, what what was his first name again? I I, I, I it's, it's slipping my my mind for a second. Brooks. 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 There it goes. Classic Brooks. baseball name. Yeah. Brooks. Classic. Uh, up at the uh, rich rich guy name. Also, <laughs> also, also yeah. that. But but let me say before you begin, before <laughs> let, we let get say. too deep into this, there it is. Let me say in disillusion, and then we have keywords. Uh-huh. I mean, you can play a drinking game. There you go. Um, <laughs> I I was tickled when this when I watched this episode, and I thought, you know what? We loved Perry Mason season one. How do we make Perry Mason season two a little more? What ingredient can we add to make this do a little better? <laughs> I know. And I going. thought for you and me, it's like, oh, my God, there's a whole baseball plot. Here. I knew, like, I knew it's what you're going to say. <laughs> we're going to talk about baseball. And, and as much as, you know, <laughs> as much as most of America has, has not, you know, stuck, stuck with baseball, you and I have. Um, and, and I did sort of a deep dive on baseball. I was like, is Bake Matthews a, a real pitcher? And ter- turns out he's not. But I found like a St. Louis Cardinal person that may approximate Bake Matthews. Um, but I, I thought it was very. Uh, I thought I thought that was kind of a cool detail that that there was a, a baseball subplot. Oh yeah, I plan to mention it. <laughs> so we're meeting the McCutcheons and his Brooks. Um, he's apparently the person who ordered the arson that we see take place in the very opening scene of the episode. It's like an arson on a barge where a party was taking place, a barge called the Deluxe. And that's where, it, oh, and that's where we got that, that lovely opening title credit that we, that we, that we loved last scene where they have to, and the, the silhouette of who we later learn is actually Detective Holcomb, um, standing in front of the P, the A in Perry Mason, I think, you know. It, it's. I was like, ah, oh, ah. Oh, I, 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 I. There are some shows that get, get kind of fu- funky, funny with credits on the screen or, or words, whatever. Sometimes they overdo it. Something, whatever. But them going this classic, and and it's a, you know I don't even attribute it more to the TV series and more as just movies of that era. I just love that, and then then making it modernizing it by having people like you know or or objects be in front of the letters. I. I I just adore that. But, you know, I, I'm the kid who's like, when I was eight years old and I had bought a comic book and, you know, you know, Batman's head was, was blotting out part of his own logo. I remember going, that's so cool. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm ridiculous. So anyway, Brooks McCutcheon, we, 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 we know pretty quickly, again, painting pictures really fast. He's a, perhaps a slightly deviant faux family man, although he does seem to really care about his kids, but he also has daddy issues of his own. And the man is 20 plus years ahead of time with his baseball dreams. That's really kind of remarkable. Um, there's a lot of good reasons why there's no way you could have West Coast baseball at that point in time. It's the length of the trips because it would only at that point in time, because it's still the early thirties. Um, it would have to be by train. That's not happening. It just for practical reasons. That's why I think I think they even reference it in in the episode. But also, I'm a, ba- a bit of a baseball historian myself. That's why you don't really have baseball west of the Mississippi. It's because of tra- because all you had was train travel. You we hadn't gotten to you know air, aerial planes that could like <laughs> put teams of people on them. But I love that whole thing. But then we also we we meet his dad. We get so we get the sense of the father son relationship. It's 
it's kind of what we thought it was going to be before he even sits down to talk to his father. Um, maybe his father isn't quite as mean as I was expecting him to be, but he's still very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? He still diminishes his son. You know, he he's kind of, he's kind of like dismissive. He's dismissive of you know. His I, dreams I would say distant. Like, you can see there's a distance. There's a distance them. there. He's like, and he's basically don't you know stick to the charity work, the soup kitchens that they we we later see is something that they're they're known for doing, whatever. And so that's kind of this. We see these little pieces of these characters, and we like I said, and the, and the funny thing is because it's the early '30s, we already know that this dream of his can't happen anyway you know this 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 isn't tarantino saying hey you know what maybe we kill maybe maybe we kill hitler in a movie theater no we can't we, you know, we're, not, we're not we're not changing the course of time here and going no what, what if there was baseball in la you know 20 years earlier with a major league team no we're not going to do that but what we do see is that by the end of the episode, he's mysteriously murdered. And we don't know by who. We don't see who's holding that gun. But we do see from the promos for the future episodes that it looks like two young Mexican fellows are arrested and charged. And that's going to be the case that's going to bring Perry back to the practice of criminal law. Uh, I don't now. If, if there's more you want to say about the McCutcheons, certainly feel free. I don't really know if there is... You know, I was like, I think I recognize one of the kids, one of his sons, but I was like, eh, who cares? Um, it, it was interesting because I, I, I think the only reason you introduced Brooks McCutcheon as someone who just basically had, you know, some um, sex with someone other than his wife. And there was obviously some autoerotic asphyxiation involved there. You know, I, when she was like... T- um, touching grabbing on her throat you're really okay was he just choking her then we see the belt like oh this was it wasn't just you know just you know you know choke me while you do this it was (laughs) there's some hardcore you know michael might have been some michael hutchins stuff going on here but yet she was the one who apparently was being choked Uh, but other than there being maybe a hint of that during the conversation between him and his father about where he was everything else we see about him seems above board and he seems like an actual reasonably decent person with actual creditable and um, reasonable aspirations of what he wants to do. You know, being baseball fans, it probably helps us as well, whatever. Um, the only reason you show that is, okay, that's, that's going to be something when we go further through this, through this season, we're going to be prying apart this guy. And we're going to be learning all these other bad or seedy things about him because that's just the nature of these things. And that was just a hint to us, like, yeah, he's he's not he he's not. There's there's a facade at work here, you know. And we're, we're just informed right off the bat. It just happens to be about you know. I don't. I don't. I'm not clear if that was just any woman or if she was a a paid sex worker. I what that part. If if there was a reference to that, I just I might have missed it. I wasn't. I made a point of really not trying to take too many notes while I was watching it. But it, either way, that's that's the only reason you you do that because maybe that'll go to we'll, we'll learn more about his marriage. Maybe we'll learn more about other things or or maybe you know or things that people might have had on him or it does. It just it, by showing us that little moment. 
it's kind of like dropping a little clue here of something we're probably going to hear a lot more about in throughout the rest of the season. At least that's the way I interpreted it. Yeah, it, it, it's that, or or the the other side of it is is the guy had some kinks that at that time probably were would have been super embarrassing if anyone knew about. And for that reason, his dad wanted him out of the public spotlight because he could embarrass the family or he could be subject to blackmail or somebody, you know, getting the goods on him or whatever the, the, but, but as you said earlier in the podcast, within one episode, you, you get a sense that the thing I liked about his arc was you got a sense. This guy was a big dreamer willing to take a big swing and even when people were telling him no, he was trying to push for something that actually he his arguments are right. He just was a man ahead of his time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think there and like like I was saying, I think there are some practical reasons why it wouldn't have worked in the 1930s. But I give the man credit for still trying to pursue that. Maybe he was coming up with some ideas how it could work. You know, if you. But I think that would involve having teams um, in place in between West, you know, from right. that area all the way through LA. So you would have shorter train trips from one to the other, but eventually at a certain point, you're going to have to be cross country because right. the majority of baseball teams were all situated, you know, on the East coast, you know, St. Louis was pretty much as far West as you got, by the way, I just have to, I'm just wondering, was the picture referring to, I'm just going to go out on a limb with a dizzy Dean. Is that who, who you were thinking? No, of? no, oh, I forget. Dizzy. I forget the name, but th- there was a St. Louis Cardinals pitcher a little bit later in time than, than that bank Matthews, but okay. uh, had a nickname, but, but, you know, I love the idea of bringing, like, actually bringing somebody everybody knew out. I, I, I thought, and and I guess sort of to wrap up my thoughts about the episode, um, the thing I really, really enjoyed about watching this show, and I think it was the same last time we watched it, the first season. Um, they have a whole lot of stuff going on. Um, this is not like an A story and a B story. <laughs> this is like an A, B, C, and D story yeah. going and filling uh, an hour with that. And yet none of those stories felt like they got short shrift or you didn't see movement or figure out where the characters were. And even Bake Matthews has brought in two scenes so, you know, this pro person is really working with Brooks McCutcheon and Brooks McCutcheon gets an arc. You get a, it really was, I thought, top level writing and execution to put that many pieces in play uh, and tell that story in the time they did. So I, it makes me really look forward to this season. And I'll just say I haven't read in depth any of the any of the reviews that have come out about the season. I've just read the headlines of those reviews because I didn't want to read to color my own opinion or view it with, with any thoughts, but I'm really encouraged because some critics I really like have really praised season two from what they've seen on their advanced copies. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this season. Same thing. Uh, I was actually, fortunately I was trying to read it through uh, Facebook or something and firewall blocked me from reading past the first few sentences. And then I realized maybe that's a good thing because I don't, like you said, I don't want my view to be overly colored by reading. You know, I just want to get the general sense. That's all. And when much like yourself, if I see certain, you know, there's only a handful of especially TV critics. I even give two 
you know, what's, what they have to say when I, and I see them being positive and in fact saying they like it better than the first season. I'm like, Ooh, that's kind of cool. Um, and also to wrap up and going along with what you said, what I really loved is basically I feel that they have, there, there, there are several seeds of interest that have been planted in this episode. So I'm looking forward to seeing how they are sown and how they grow over the next several weeks. I wish the show was about a botanist because then that would have made some sense for me to use that analogy. But, um, and there was so much going on in this episode. There were things we really didn't even touch on in this conversation, but I have made a decision, um, which I wish I had done back in the day. You don't need to talk about every single last detail of an episode. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like so we didn't really touch on the dream thing with, with Emily Dodson or, or, or certain other little aspects, but that's okay. We don't have to talk about everything, <laughs> but I'm very encouraged by what we saw. I have said a billion times before, and I'll say it again, you know, I love movies and television series that take place in this period of time. Ooh, the early 30s, everybody looks great. I love the performers on this show. I'm looking forward to what well, we're going to move forward. I'm wondering how much Hamilton Burger we are going to get. Justin Kirk, it's my favorite thing he's done, you know, because he was one of, he was one of the only things I liked about Weeds for a while there, and then I even got tired of him on that as well. Uh, but he, I I I I love um, we just get little tastes of him here, and he's just a lot of fun. And very happy. The in fact, if I had any criticism of the ser- of the episode or the series at all, and I bet if I if we had time to waste, I would give you you know I, I would have a ticking clock for you, Brian. And uh, my only hint would be, it's incredibly stupid. You'd probably get it, <laughs> like just like that. My only critique of the series, uh, you know. But I, w- I won't. I don't want there to be dead air on the podcast. <laughs> so unless you're gonna blurt something out, I'll say what it is. Say it. I know they finally touched on it to a certain extent in the very last episode of season one. Not good enough. And I know someone out there is going to say, well, if you listen, there are certain slight melodic strains here and there. Nye. Nye. I don't mind if you do some sort of updated version or if you mess around with it a bit here or there. But if you're going to do a Perry Mason series, I want the Perry Mason theme. It needs to be used to some extent. Play with it, make change it, jazz it up, whatever. But it's still and if you, and I know people are gonna like, oh, but it's, no, then it's not clear enough. And I'll and I can point to other series that you and I are, I believe, both watch that are being done right now, and they can do their own thing if they want as well. But they both know, hey, you know what? We at least have to have a nod to the original music from the original series that spawned this you know, 50, 60, whatever years ago. So if I'm watching, and I'm, by the way, it's not going to be the first time I bring one of these shows up in this podcast. Wait for it. So if I'm watching Picard or Strange New Worlds, do they find some way to still work in a little bit of the theme or or major part of the theme from the original Star Trek series? Yes, they do. So that's the only, again, it's, I don't care but but when the open when the credits were rolling, I was listening to the music and they were like it was like, it was really just you know very jazz whatever. I was like okay, I'm listening. I'm like wait a minute, 
Why wouldn't they use? Why wouldn't they have? Come on, people! <laughs> and I, I was like, I was playing it back, like, oh, is that supposed to be it right there? Nah, it's not good enough. Maybe it's going to be a device that they'll play when he gets his mojo back. <laughs> no, they're going to do it at the last episode every season. So every season, and just be like, "Here you go, Scott. You know, we made. You know, it's bad enough the world made you wait like six years for 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 golden boots on another TV show. Now we're making you wait for this. All right, enough of that. So we we can <laughs> we we can close the book on Perry Mason for this week because now time to buckle up now there may be a few out there who like to mock me and my my monologues <laughs> so brian you can i i know you i know unlike myself you're not having alcohol this evening so well, you can sip your non-alcoholic beverage for a moment or two <laughs> because i am finally going to get to talk about that show i've been wanting to talk about for the last several weeks and that show would be poker face even though there's part of me that really wants to talk about how bad an app or a streaming service Peacock is, but I don't want to spend that much time on it. Except, by the way, if you if you start watching Peacock or anything else on, on that show, better just watch it straight through. Don't pause it for a while don't, if you have to go to the bathroom because you're screwed. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. But, but instead, I'm going to annoy most listeners by saying I'm going to talk about Poker Face, and now I'm going to do that by talking about another series. <laughs> Which is literally one of my all-time favorite television productions. And, you know, look, if I was composing a list that wasn't confined to the last 25 years, but just the history of television, this is a series that would be landing in my top 10. And there's a reason why I want to talk about it. And it's not just because I'm participating in some bracket challenge on Twitter, you know, for all the guest villains. It's because there is a direct and and a massive tie-in to Poker Face. So just take the train ride with me. We'll get to the station eventually, you know. It may be a local. <laughs> we may be passing by stops that you had no interest in seeing. But look out the window. The view is lovely. We're going to get there. I want to talk a little bit about Columbo first. Columbo. Yeah, all, all, all the 20-somethings listen to our podcast. There's like probably two people. And I go, who, what? The yogurt? No. Did he t- <laughs> I'm talking about the, the most, perhaps the most iconic TV detective of all time, which featured perhaps the best performance by any actor as a detective on television of all time, blowing past, I'm sorry, blowing past any cop from The Wire or The Shield or NYPD Blue or Homicide or whatever else you got. Honestly, the closest you get to Peter Fox Columbo would probably be James Garner's Jim Rockford as far as iconic performance and detectives on, in the medium of television. They are both on that genre's Mount Rushmore. But that series, which was really a handful of mystery movies that were released every year from 1971 to 1978, and they did come back and, re- and started to do them again in the late 80s and 90s, although those were never good, as good. They were fun, but you know, never as enjoyable, you know, never as good. But getting back to the point, Columbo was designed not so much as a police procedural, even though you can say it was. It's the most famous example of a series in the how catch genre. That's one, it's one word pushed together. It's not how catch them. It's how catch them genre. It's an inversion of the classic whodunit murder mystery. Whereas instead, you know, with a whodunit, you know, whodunit, we know full well who did it. 
The FUD is watching how the detective pursues the killer as well as how the killer attempts to avoid detection. It's something that we've been seeing and we saw in films like Dial M for Murder or famous Dorothy, uh, mystery novels by, like those that were written by, um, Dorothy L. Sayers, the, you know, the Lord Peter Whimsey books, whatever. You can say they did that in older series back in the 60s, like your, your dragnets and whatever else. But it's Columbo that was the gold standard and it's easily the most famous series to ever use that method of tele, of storytelling. Also with Columbo, there had never been another series to attract actors and stars to appear as either a victim or murderer, especially murderer, on Columbo, since the only exception might be, might be the 1960s Batman series, maybe. With Columbo, every episode, you would spend the first 15 to 20 minutes with the killer. You would typically see the motivation for the crime, the planning, the execution, the covering up. In, in Well, in most cases, there actually are a couple exceptions. But everything happens before Lieutenant Columbo is actually on the scene. And then as you watch, you have to decide at what point do we think he's actually suspicious of the killer? How many times will he have his just one more thing to ask? And how, <laughs> just how will he trip up that murderer? And the villains themselves, sometimes they're detestable. And sometimes they're not just understandable. They're downright likable. I mean, you could have Leonard Nimoy being the worst person imaginable in one episode. Then the next episode, it's Johnny Cash, and you kind of want him to get away with it. And it's that series, and here we go, here, the train's pulling in now. It's that series, and those conceits, that was the initial, and honestly, the primary, although there are other things, which I'll mention shortly, primary inspiration for Ian Johnson to create Poker Face. Now, anyone who's listened to this podcast over the years knows how much we hold uh Rian Johnson. Am I pronouncing his first name correctly? Is it Rian? Am I? Is it, I feel like I might be screwing up. I, I say Ryan, but I, I don't know for sure. I've never looked it up. I didn't think of it until just now, and I can't remember how I pronounced it when we we've talked about Ozymandias and other things. Because you know, because as I was just about to say, even although his work in films, I think for the most part, has been superlative. You know, Looper, Knives Out, even his polarizing Star Wars film. It's Ozymandias. It's The Fly. It's Breaking Bad. No worries. You don't got to say anything else. Stop right there. But the thing with Poker Face, it's not that it's simply an updated version of Columbo, even if it's a loving homage from the title fonts that that are used to open every episode. Oh, I love the the, the copyright date. By the way, I watched an episode of Columbo this week, and when I saw the copyright date under the title, I'm like, see, I knew they took that from that. You know, or the fact that our somewhat intrusive main character is also a smoker. <laughs> the way I hear Miss Leone, the poster girl for smoking, if there ever was one for the last 20 years, has actually been trying to quit. But there is also a slight serialized nature to her character's journey, never more so than when we got to the finale, as she, she spends a series on the run from an infamous casino owner gangster type from the very end of the first episode on. So every episode, she's in a new town, location, different jobs, trying to stay off the grid, not to be tracked down, trying to avoid the law at all costs, which is actually a nice subversion of the Columbo concept. You know, she's not working on behalf of the law, she's trying to avoid the law. It's more like The Fugitive, or even The Incredible Hulk. You could even throw in something like Quantum Leap if you really want to stretch it to that extent. I mean, and I know, Brian, I know you can certainly toss other shows and even movies, you know, the series makes nods to from episode to episode, from Magnum to Murder, She Wrote. 
But what's truly wonderful about the series that we will both, I know, I, I see I see you chomping, <laughs> that we will both be talking about in a second. So pardon my extended monologue here. Oh, podcast critics out there. What I love is that it embraces a form of TV storytelling that many had either ran away from or had consigned to the sort of mundane fare one can find on any random broadcast TV network. Looking especially at you, CBS. And I didn't forget about you either, uh, NBC and your 1001 Dick Wolf shows. But what Poker Face does is that it picks up the gauntlet of those NBC mystery movies I had mentioned earlier, and the Columbo episode specifically, and it creates a perfect little concoction with every episode. It's a lo- it, it, even though there is that serialized nature that you know that finds it threads its way through episode to episode. Regardless of that, each one becomes a lovely little standalone movie that may or may not have thin threads of her own character, Charlie Kale, trying to avoid the pursuit of uh, Benjamin Bratt's Cliff, or you know that's the security dude working for the casino owner. Um, it, it it just I just love that it it, it embraces the the the, the the one and done kind of, kind of storytelling. And that's where it kind of eerily reminds me of a show I mentioned a little while ago, the new Star Trek series, strange new worlds, which is an ongoing series, which is also both functions as an homage and embracing an old series from decades ago. But with, even though it's got some serialized tweaks to it that heighten the suspense from week to week, it also functions as stand, you know, one standalone episode after another. I lo- so many have run away from it. I love that we have two really great series totally, again, embracing that. I did leave out one of the central and fun conceits of the series, which I'm going to say is probably less a nod to the series' series's shows, play shows. Lists kill me all the time. The shows in the 1970s, and maybe perhaps more of a wink at the almost impossibly uh, prescient and perceptive to the point of being superpower characters of, you know, the last 20 odd years. You know, I'm talking about shows like Monk and House and so many others, is that in this series, Charlie or Charlie Kale is a human lie detector, or she would undoubtedly put it, a bullshit detector. All right. I said that, Brian. Guess what? I'm going to tag you in now. I gave my preface, my preamble, the overview. I, you know, from, you know, my spiel is over, you know, so let, we got 10 episodes we can delve into. We, I'm not saying we're going to talk about all 10. That would be crazy. But, you know, the finale aired tonight. I, I believe we are going to need to talk about that one, but I'm going to leave it to you to open this up. Go. I, I am I am get, I'm getting out of the cab. You you can take over the train now. You can go wherever you want to go. You can go, you, you can go to the you can go to the West Coast and, and bring over a baseball team if you want. <laughs> well, I'm gonna hop in my sweet ass ride and drive across America for about a year, uh, <laughs> dodging mob bosses. Um, I, I will say I love the the my preamble will start by saying this: this show has rules that I enjoy. Um, that it sets that Charlie can tell what the truth is. So we know that. So we play along with her and we watch what people say and consider what we know from the beginning that Charlie doesn't know that she's going to learn and how, how language is used. Like some people aren't discovered till later in the episode because the right question isn't asked or they don't say the right thing. 
And we're waiting to figure out how that how language is going to be used. So there's really creative use of language in the writing in this show to frame the questions and investigation to where she figures it out. Um, and, and, and it's different in, in every episode. Um, we know that. And, and let me back up and just say this. The one thing I've heard that annoys the shit out of me is when people say, well, everywhere she goes, somebody dies. That's not realistic. You're watching a show where she's a human lie detector and can always tell when people lies. Okay. If that's the conceit and you're, and you're okay with that, but you can't buy that she's someplace where people die. Like if you can't suspend your disbelief beyond that, go watch, go watch Dick Wolf shows. Okay. I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, the conceit of the show is outlandish and incredibly enjoyable. So I just want to put that out there. So if that's a criticism you have, like don't watch a show about a person's a human lie detector, but the the rules as they apply to this show and the way they apply them uh, is very creative. Um, there's the idea that no matter what trouble she gets into, she can't call the police. Um, no matter what trouble she gets into, she can't let her name get out there. Uh, so we establish the sort of rules of the road for her trip that, that uh, are very compelling to us as we watch. Um, the next thing I'd like to say, and you and I talked about this, after about the second episode, you figured out the structure of the show. And from then on, when you watch the the prologue, you know, the murder, you try to figure out where's Charlie going to be in that, <laughs> like, where, where was she when this was happening? Where's and you Charlie? try to guess where it's at. Uh, which makes for a fun game because then when we go back and see the different viewpoint replay of the episode, it's like, oh, she's this. And I think, you know, I enjoyed greatly when she was the merch girl for the band that that was a that was an interesting place um, and probably probably my favorite thing. And I have to think I have to think that, that Natasha Leone was probably thrilled that she got to be and do a lot of work with Nick Nolte in the Orpheus episode um, that, you know, she starts delivering human hair. She has all these weird jobs and he offers her a job and she sees this former, um, you know, guy down on his luck. And he's almost like the Perry Mason character that, that is so despondent and cynical that he just brutally tells the truth. And she like becomes enamored of him that he's completely unadorned of any affectation whatsoever and goes to work for him. So there's that. Um, then there's the, the idea that, that in some episodes, the killers don't get caught on screen because that, that can't happen. They're busted by podcast hosts. They're busted by, um, you know, a, a recording that's made and sent out to an audience. Um, so, so it's not a traditional show in that we get to see the bad guys let, let off in cuffs or we get to see them dead always, but we know they got their comeuppance. Um, I love the use of music in this show. And I have to say, not since maybe dueling banjos 
Has there been more use of a banjo <laughs> and that little melodic theme that plays? It's, it, it's so catchy. It's yeah, her, it's the it's it's the here's Charlie now theme. <laughs> yes, and it's so melodic and and it's like an, a really really unique choice for that to be played on a banjo. I love that. There, there's great music throughout. The the guest stars are amazing, and if I have to single out, I, I think the two things I would. I would talk about in particular. Um, I really enjoyed the uh, um, the rock and roll, the metal one. Uh, was it was it uh, R.I.P. to metal or rest in metal? Rest in metal. I really enjoyed that one because in that episode where it took her, um, she traveled with the victim, and we got to see a side of the victim, the the sort of dumb, dumbass drummer who shows up and acts like a fool. We get to see a side of him through her eyes at, at traveling as the merch girl. Um, and I, I like that episode and I, and I like the humor in it. You know, the, the guitar player is selling his shit on eBay and they keep saying, don't sell, sell stuff on eBay. And the dumbass sells stuff on eBay. Um, and I really liked escape from shit mountain which just is an all-time you know all-time uh name for an episode but but a great episode and uh it even the show even meta got gets meta about itself in that episode um because she's the victim and when the girl pulls up in her car she says are you me um and and it flips that that she's the one that has been victimized we don't realize that initially and and because the show's always set it up a different way when that happened and it comes back from the first break and you see it's her you think the girl is the the girl's riding with her is the one that's going to get hit and it's not it's charlie right uh and we see that journey um and you know, I can't say enough. I, I don't know if there's been a show, probably, Scott, since, gosh, since those the heyday of the 70s that's been able to get so many stars. And I would say Ryan Johnson probably has to do with that. But you can just talk about the, the, the stars in these shows. And, um, you know, you had Nick Nolte, Cherry Jones, and, and Luis Guzman in the Orpheus episode. You had Joseph Gordon-Levitt in Shit Mountain. Um I mean, just a, a murderer's row of uh, we had Adrian Brody. We had yeah, pun intended Adrian Brody, Ron Perlman, Benjamin Bratt signed off on to basically do the whole season. Uh, and even, you know, I'll save talking about the, the finale. I think we can put that at the end. Um, but questions that maybe you had, like, how long is this happening? Like, where all has she gone? The show masterfully tied that all together. And um, I, I think you hit the nail on the head that, that this is this is a love letter to 70s TV, but it's not derivative uh, of 70s TV. It takes the form and takes the uh, takes what that is and, if you will, advances it um, in, a, in a really creative way. But I love the way it looks. It, some of the places she she's at, the way people dress is timeless. It's not rooted in the past and it's not rooted, you know, in the most modern fashion today. 
there are places she's at that it could be the 70s. There's places she's at it could be the 80s. There's places she's at it could be today. Um, you know, uh, uh, it, if I think back of, I like the the race car driver one because I like the flip in that that we watch the initial thing and we find out later it's his daughter. Um, that was a good good flip and and the guy who you feel sorry for they flip that on you because he removed the seatbelt. um so there there's so many nice twists and turns and when i reflect on you talking about you know colombo i think you and i talked about this the other day and i've noticed it since we talked about it i, I caught the last two or three episodes in the last couple of days um she even sort of does the walk away and walk back oh yeah move like the only thing missing occasionally is maybe her waving the cigarette a little more every time, but she does at some point. Um, but well, it, it's just, it's just, I think this show, this show gives me something to look at that I'm interested about. I get to play a little game watching it. Like, like how's she going to figure it out? Where was she at the beginning? Uh, what are the lies going to be? And that makes for really interesting viewing. Right. And, and one of the things you touched on, and I'll expound on a little bit more, um, and, and how it further differentiates itself from, from something like Columbo, for example. Um, and I'm saying this as, you know, hardcore Columbo fan, but I want, and why I like this series so much is while it's clearly, um, nods and homage and whatever else that show, they also make very conscious decisions to, Yes, we can do that, but we're also going to flip it on you. We're going to, I don't want to keep using phrases like subvert. It's not exactly the same thing, but it, it, I like the idea of flipping things on you either. Oh, where's it? Like, say the race car driver episode that you, that you mentioned where, you know, then that was, uh, the future of the sport, the, the, the seventh episode and the entire thing we're watching through the for, through the opening. And the expectation is the person that she will be at some point pursuing till the end of this is over is going to be the Tim Blake Nelson character. And then they switch it on. It's like, yeah, he was up to something nefarious. And then he actually confesses because of what happened to his daughter. And it's the person that she had been siding along with and had actually grown even attracted to and had, and had a connection with that's the person who's who's actually going to be the quote unquote villain of the piece and that's one of the and that's also an example of something you mentioned where by the end of it no he isn't being arrested and being led away by to the to the police or anything but it's it's almost like she she just drops the thought in his head and he's left in this and it's it's a lovely um callback to something that's talked about earlier in the episode it's almost like having the shakes before yeah. you know, whatever and you see that all of a sudden he has it and you realize you will that dream you had the, what you were going you were never going to fulfill it yeah and it's it, called and, losing your flow right and where and we can almost be okay with that being the resolution because not everything needs to be tied up as, as neatly as we'd expect it to because she's not a cop she's not a detective and also at at the very least at least the person who almost died didn't die and they are, and they are, uh, from what we understand by the end of the episode, they, they are recovering. So at least there, there is that. It would maybe be more troubling if 
the, the person had died and the still the person in to one extent or another quote unquote got away with it but they do things like that throughout the i mean the um the what do you call it? the escape from shit mountain one is is an amazing uh the 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 meta aspect of that and where she's the actual victim throughout it and there's so many really interesting um twists and turns that episode takes and they're playing with a couple different kind of um I don't even want to I wouldn't say their genre so much as a storytelling device is all within one episode and I love how the creation uh, throughout that episode, we're working out how they, how they do that. We work everything from, okay, we're dealing with a character who we're, who ostensibly is going, we know is going to be the villain. At least we assume he's going to be the villain because, you know, that race car driver told us never assume. Um, but we also know he's got, you know, the, uh, the, the, the ankle, um, thing going on there that, that he's confined, you know, to home, to house arrest or something. And how do we get around that? And how, and we know that's kind of like a form of a ticking bomb in the episode on top of everything else. And then we have the, what's taking place at, what takes place over the course of time at the motel where it's almost like the, you're, you're confining space. You know, you're trapped here. There's a snowstorm outside. I love it. it's all these it's all these familiar little ideas all come to roost all in one episode. And then they do something bizarre, like, wait a minute, where did they bury someone? Under a tree? Is that where the hobbits live? Right. <laughs> just as, but I just loved it. And he's like, and we're gonna keep using the same hole to keep burying people. The spot, man. We it's gotta have to go to the spot. If it works, it works. But uh I I, I noticed um, and I, and I, and I have a special adoration for every single episode of the season. And of course, I could cite ones that were earlier on. And I, and I kind of, I kind of almost, you almost want to take away the two bookends because they, I think they're separate from everything else because the, the first episode, it's everything's unfolding and explaining the entire, the entire premise of the series and what the ongoing plot's going to be, even though it does still have that format to it of the opening 15 minutes. Then we bounce back and we meet Charlie. And that's how, and we, when we first see that, we're like, Oh, that's weird. Well, that's, that's different than Columbo or whatever. And then by the time we get to the next, I like, Oh, that's how they're going to do this. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's the format for this. Let's enjoy that. But what I, where I'm going with this is, um, even though th- there's no episode I don't like, I, I love them all for different reasons. But I also noticed that as we get to the later stage, the second half of the, of the season, because they did split it up when they, they rolled these things out for us, I noticed that the episodes act, for me at least, I, I hate to say that they got better from episode to episode, but I think they just became almost more inventive. They, they, they just, I think they, they played with the format just a little bit more each time. So they took more chances with, with each episode, like the one that you mentioned with Nick Nolte. And I think that's the one that I, if I'm not mistaken, let me look. Yes. Orpheus Syndrome, Natasha Leon herself directed that one. And she even co-wrote that episode. Um, there is something really, I, I hate to use the word like artsy because that sounds a little, you know, bourgeois, or whatever, but there's something kind of nice seventies trippy about it. 
especially, you know, not, not just the fact that we're dealing with, you know, a almost long forgotten form of uh, the special effects medium that we don't really see as much nowadays with stop motion and things like that. It seems to be few and far between in the era of CGI and whatever. But when you watch like the, the final scene of that episode, it, it, that looks like something that could have been on a, you know, a, a 1970 episode of Night Gallery, quite frankly, right. or something like that. Right. Or, or even like in that episode, I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's sort of a nod to the Tom Savinis of the world, the, the, the special effects makers that sort of fall out of favor. Um, and, and, you know, the, the play between, there's even sort of a commentary in that about the, the danger of digitization. You know, that, that, but for the real film, you know, you could just erase what happened you know, right. on something digitized, but he spliced out the real film to save it. Um, and, you know, I think a, an ingenious nod, I mean, lights and magic, like LAM, like it's, it's not that different than industrial light and magic. No, no, they're, they're <laughs> you know, it's, 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 but that's what's beautiful. Um, that's what's beautiful about it. And, and I have to say, uh, a couple of things along the way that, that stood out. I think you're right about the second half that they sort of swung bigger, but the, but they were able to do that because the first half was successful. And so I think like the, an episode, the stall, you know, the, the barbecue episode, that was a really good episode that, that I loved in particular because you had the ridiculous conceit of the racist dog who, you know, would only stop barking if you played like, you know, talk great conservative talk radio. Um, but you see her effect on people that sort of her relationship with, you know, the pit guy and her, them watching movies and stuff that he decides like he doesn't want to do barbecue anymore. Like it, it sort of fleshed out a little bit of, of her character that in a lot of people's lives, she, makes a difference that, that, that she is a good person and she's on the run. And I love that, that they still, even when they do a, a heavy episode, there's like running gags and silly things like, you know, Mortimer Bernstein taking her wallet, you know, that the, they care. And, and my favorite line, you know, <laughs> Mortimer Bernstein, you son of a bitch. It, it, it just, there's just the ultimate blend of comedy, uh, drama, mystery suspense intrigue it, it's just really a great concoction of all these things that i think they build they sort of build the set in the first half of the season and play with it in the second half the, the way I, if i was to uh do a speed rundown of how i feel and how they how they create this arc throughout the throughout the entire season and again the first episode is the setup of the first episode is the setup of Charlie Kale herself. Yes. So yes, we have the murder and everything else that happens with Adrian, but it's the setup of who she is and it's, it's the why now and, and what we're going to see for the next several episodes. So that's what episode one is. Episode two is the episode where, okay, now we're going to establish what it is we're going to be doing on this series, that she's going to be going to different locations and we're gonna, and she's going to, you know, again, as, as some people had issues with, you know, and, but those of us who, understand the, the medium of television we embrace because it's that's the fun of it you're missing the fun of it if you're going to be questioning why there's a murder every week um, then guess what good thing you didn't live in the 80s because you you would have blown you, murder she would have blown your mind <laughs> uh 
But the the purpose anyway. I, I don't. I want to want to stay on a roll here. The purpose of that second episode is this is what this is the kind of thing she's gonna do. And look, here's a little detective story. Here's a little mystery thing. And and look how we're gonna and look how we're gonna trick you occasionally. We're we're not gonna you're not gonna realize. Oh, that woman. She's actually the truck driver and that truck. And, and this is how these little things are gonna come together. But how are we gonna? Oh, but but we have to remind you. She has to be on the run. She's gotta worry. There's a time. There's there's a time issue here. So the second episode establishes this is what we're going to be doing, and this is and and here's what the stakes are. Oh, if she, you know, because she's trying to stay off the grid, but things go wrong. Third episode is the one you mentioned, the stall episode. Um, I I don't think I, I mean again I like all episodes. I'm probably not as partial to that episode <laughs> as you are. Um, so I don't really have as much to say about it other than like, hey, racist dog. But you know, we both have a lot of affection for the fourth episode, Rest in Metal. You you nailed it perfectly, and I think that is the major function of that episode. It's it's hey, it, it it's not just oh we're we're gonna play with your expectations or your perception, you know, as far as a killer is concerned. This is where it's about the victim, and the victim that we just thought was a total you know spinal tap referencing you know not re- reference himself, not he doesn't reference spinal tap um, doofus. We realize oh. There was a lot more to him, and now the fact that he is his death—that's it's it's it it feels far more tragic and and heartfelt than it did just fifteen minutes earlier. We go to the next episode, and there's where they pick up where the reminder for old fogies like me. Oh, you guys are like Columbo because you know the one thing we haven't really had. Because I mean, we're not gonna—I can't really make a case for the metal band. You can, but I, I wouldn't because I think they show the Chloe Sevigny characters can be kind of a uh, you know see you next Tuesday from time to time throughout that episode. But Time of the Monkey, the one with Judith Light and Esopathia Merkelson. Uh, until we find the real details about what they did back in their radical youth, we love them. And when we hear, and we, and we find out that the guy would come, if it wasn't for him, she wouldn't have been in prison for those years and, lo- and lost the function of her life, whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's like, we understand. We, yeah, he should have died. Yeah, was, she was right to kill them. And then she also has like, and I think if I'm not mistaken, unless I'm forgetting something, I think that's the first one where Charlie actually has physical altercations with the people that she's, that she's, you know, about, you know, you know, about to reveal as the killers or whatever. So I, and that was the final episode of the first half that we saw. And I, and I said, okay, they established what this character is, what she's doing. And here's the different types of quote unquote villains, whatever. You've done the establishing. We're going to take a breather now. Let's see where you go with see with with the second half. Second half, you've we've talked about this. Exit stage death. The way they tricked us. I mm-hmm. love I love them finally, you know, because the idea with like your Columbos and, and shows of, of that nature, we know everything. This one we didn't. They tricked us, and we loved the fact that they did that. And people and characters that we might have thought we liked were like, "Oh no, they're 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 pretty horrible." Oh, they're 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 they're, they're really hard. You know, those two that we liked in the other episode. Oh, we hate them. Now. <laughs> we hate yeah. these two. Now. <laughs> love that, and I just I, and I love the fact that like, okay, guess what? We can we can play with your expectations in a, in a totally new way. You're gonna there are things that you're gonna think were one thing, not something else. So guess what? And that's and then they take that to a further extreme with future of the sport that we just talked about the, the race car driver and then the Orpheus syndrome 
which is just you know what I loved about that episode that we didn't that we didn't mention. I mean, you mentioned obviously we were talking about how great Nick Nolte was in it, and really what makes that episode so memorable is the relationship between Charlie and Nick Nolte. But it's also the lovely idea that we always have the goofy concept of her being a human lie detector. Mm-hmm. I love the idea that because every time someone does something, she kind of winces, like it, it it physically hurts her, like it really is some sort of weird superpower. <laughs> and, and she I, develops a twitch. And she has a twitch, and her, why she and the fact that she gravitates to the Nick Nolte character so much because she never has to twitch around him. Because yeah. as you said, as you said yourself, he's he's nothing but honest in everything yeah. he says. And also, it's just nice to see Nick Nolte work again. It's like wow, the years have not been kind. But it's a great, and I remember when we watched when we watched that episode. I said, "Oh my god, this is my favorite episode of the of the series." Until we got to Escape from Shit Mountain, and it's like, okay, no, this is my favorite episode of the series. Mm-hmm. I love, and plus, oh, by the way, I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt, if I'm not mistaken, um, he's been involved or has some part of every single uh, Rian Johnson movie. Um, obviously not TV show, because he hasn't appeared in um, Breaking Bad or anything. But I think he's been in, in every movie that he's done. Um, even as a voice, he's even like the voice of the... The, the house in the, the in the in the in the glass onion movie, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, he's doing the bell. <laughs> he's that's Joseph Gordon's voice. Well, I, I I don't think we mentioned this, and I think you and I both mentioned this before, and we would totally kick ourselves if we didn't mention it. Uh-oh. How much did we love that the hit song the drummer wrote was based on the music from Benson? Oh my gosh. You want to talk about a love letter to the seventies, right? Like of all the TV themes you could pick that were popular, Benson was a good theme, but it's not the one that would pop to the top of your mind. But I know when we watched it, you and I had talked about that and we loved that, that the reason the bands ultimately denied a hit single is that, that it's copyright infringement. And, and the dude had watched Benson in the, you know, while they're traveling down the road. And which, it, which they hinted at. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, that was actually my favorite thing about that episode because it was, it was so beautiful and ridiculous all at the same time. Yes. Uh, the, the, the level of, I don't want to keep using words like meta, but. Eh, maybe um the fun references they do just from things that people are watching on tv the fact that they someone maybe i'm, I'm assuming it's Rand johnson or someone else but i'm gonna say it's him because he, he he wrote he wrote the episode we, we watched earlier today um loves burn notice yeah because <laughs> i believe we've seen not, we, we see burn notice used more than a couple times on this because it wasn't just this episode we'd seen burn notice used before that and if you want to talk about a reference, my friend, and this might be forget all the other ones because yes, we know they make they reference movies. We saw the hook, hook, which is yeah, whatever. I think Pulp Fiction's in another. I, I don't want to hear about any more TV references. Twice, twice in this series, they did it tonight's episode, and they did it in another one. I don't remember which one. She's the one who makes it in the other one, and this one it's uh the the FBI agent who who does it this time. Twice they make references, beautiful, I want to hug the people involved in this production references, to the movie The Conversation. The Gene Hackman movie The Conversation. Um, much like the movie I alluded to in the introduction but didn't say by title. By the way, Frank Galvin, I was referencing the movie The Verdict. If you haven't seen the movie The Conversation, please, please, please 
go out of your way to try to track that down and, and watch it. It is Gene Hackman's finest performance on film. I'm sorry, French Connection. I'm sorry, Unforgiven. You're both great. But the conversation is his best performance on film. And I can make a case. I'll probably lose. But I can at least make a strong case for making saying it's Coppola's best movie. Yes, that's right. I know The Godfather. I know, I know, I know. It Probably those two are. Godfather 1 and 2 are probably better. But I can try to make a case that Conversation is a better movie. Because the Conversation is watched coast to coast in film schools just as much as the Godfather movies. It's a brilliant movie. And it makes it makes me sad that there's so many people who aren't even aware of it. I was watching a TV version of a radio show that I watch while I work during the day. For me, and sometimes one of the fellows on it does like a top five list. It's, it's usually sports related, but every once in a blue moon he'll do a random TV or movie thing. He did a top five Gene Hackman thing for Gene Hackman's birthday a couple weeks ago. The conversation was not in the top five. I tweeted angrily at him. It's like, no, this this list is fraudulent. You know, you can you can explain away not having the Royal Tenenbaums in there. You cannot explain away not having the conversation there. I am sorry. The birdcage, really? Anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> maybe he maybe he hadn't seen it. So let's oh let, let let's get to the finale. Yes. And oh, and and, and I'm going to skip ahead to the end just just for the the just to identify the voice because I think it's kind of funny the more I think about it. Because I think most people, if they watch the credits, or they maybe just they just recognize it outright, it's Raya Perlman's voice. Not to be confused with Ron Perlman. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm pretty sure they're not related. <laughs> this that means this series has not one but two different Cheers people who appear in episodes. Because John Ratzenberger is in you know the the second episode of the season. So I keep thinking, you know, George Went was once on a Columbo. He he can show up at some point, can he? Where's Ted Danson? Come on. Anyway, uh, talk about an episode that you're watching and you're expecting it to go one way, and they keep they keep zigging when we expect them to zag, and vice versa. Um, it's it's no coincidence that this. Whereas um, the previous episode was directed by Rian Johnson, this one was written by him. And I got to be honest, I, f- I was very aware of that. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I noticed the level of, I mean, and the show is exceptionally well written throughout. So I, you know, the showrunners, the two showrunners actually wrote the previous episode, but it just, I felt the writing of this episode just got stepped up a notch characters were maybe even slightly more articulate and with with the, the choice of words maybe he could use the word ruinous one less time but other than that <laughs> i think that was like the theme of the episode when more than one character uses the word ruinous i think wait a minute maybe he should have changed that word but there was so much and i'll, I'll give you my my favorite thing about the epi- one of my favorite things about the episode is we're watching this and we're we're it's the culmination of her having been on the run, that that fantastic opening that shows us how much time has passed. Thank you, Rian Johnson. That's such a Rian Johnson kind of joke, gag, the way he, they, they pull that whole thing off, whatever. And there's there's so much fun of being being uh, on the run and all the things that happen there, and I, I won't tick them off because I want to give you stuff to, to say, <laughs> obviously. But I'll tell you what I love, which made me go, 
if this show isn't a top tier show, Mr. Brian, I know you like to say th- things aren't. Um, I don't know what, the, I don't know what is. It's the conversation between her and her sister. Yeah. In the laundry room. That the way there is so many obvious, I've seen this before ways that scene could have been written and how Clay and specifically Clay Duvall's dialogue could have been written. And that's not what they do. It's not, and, and how she talks about her is not how we expect her to talk about her. I mean, anyone, I'll, I'll ask anyone who watched that episode, did you expect, think about what she says? Go back and rewatch those couple minutes and come back to me. Is that what you thought she was going to say to her? No. The only thing, yes, you knew she was going to make her leave, but you didn't think she was going to say those things to her. I love that. I love, because they've been having so much fun flipping on us as far as the murder mystery elements and all those kind of things. They just flipped that on us too. They did, and they they drop a big clue um, to their past, their shared past, um, that if you think back to Escape from Ship Mountain when she thinks about maybe that was the happiest moment of my life, there's that scene at the pool with the creepy guy, Mm -hmm. and that's all you see of the past. And then her sister says this thing. And it makes you think like, like I think the purpose of this scene is to say, even if there wasn't the turmoil that, that has her on the run, she's running from herself. Like, like she's always staying in motion because she, she, she can't find a home. She's on the move. Like she's running from her past. She's running from, from this, from that. And, and the the great thing about that scene in my mind was there was enough compassion that her sister wasn't a complete ass, but there was not open arm acceptance or forgiveness and pretty much said like, you know, maybe someday you can meet my daughter, but today's not the day and you've got, you've got to do stuff differently. Like the life you live now, you, you want it. This is what you want. And, and I thought it was brilliant and I thought it tied back to that scene in Escape from Ship Mountain yep. that, that, that like you, what you said, the economy of storytelling, you know, like if you believe if, if we want to be super cheesy and meta, you know, it's usually a terrible thing that gives a person a superpower. It's usually not, you know, unless you're Superman and you're born with it. Um, most superheroes are created. Um and, you know, it may be at some point in the future we discover why she has to develop an ability to, ter- to determine when people lie all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a hint that she has a pretty dark backstory. Yeah. Um, it's done really well. And, and, and just to continue with that, just for a, another moment or two, um, and then just maybe hit a few silly things about the episode before I wrap things up here. Um what I love about that, what you just said, and what and and what I loved about the scene, and why I, I'm actually I'm 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 not while I'm not saying this show is at that level as far as oh it's like top two three of all time kind of obviously that's crazy, but I love that it's taking an idea like say um, I'll use Mad Men as an example because I figure most of our listeners have actually watched Mad Men and if they haven't they should have. Um, think about Mad Men and think about how much or little we know about Don Draper throughout season one and how much we learn about him throughout season one and how more is trickled in on us throughout 
the next season and even the season after that. It, it takes us a few, at least a few seasons to really get the full picture of who and what that character is. And he's also changing and he's, oh, or maybe he's actually not changing any love. And that was, that was his issue actually. But you know what I'm saying? I love the fact that they're trickling in these things and, you know, they could have just made it really, made, made something really simple here and just said, you know, and we're like, and, and, you know, there was, and you were abused as a child and you escaped and you left her there and whatever, but something that we've seen far too many times. I like that we got a sense. We got, you know, these things were said, but we know there's so much more to this story. We know there's more to the story because of the way that Charlie is acting and reacting. She's not defense. She's not trying to defend herself at all. So we know that she knows she was wrong. And that's very interesting. And, and based on the rules of the show, her sister doesn't lie one single word. Let, uh, uh, let me address that because I want to um, correct me if I'm wrong. And I probably am often because, you know, it happens. During this entire episode, the finale. And if she if it happened, just remind me. Does her bullshit meter ever go off? Because notice all the scenes of Benjamin Bratt, he never responds to her in a way where it's a lie because he knows what she can do. Like that entire conversation on the yacht later, you know, I noticed that. It's like, oh, the way he's answering everything, there's no, that's why she's not tuned in. And in the car, same within the car. The Ron Perlman conversation, nothing he says is a lie. The conversation, the, was there maybe, there may have been a moment with the FBI agent, maybe, I don't remember, because she always says, bull, she always has that reaction, always says bullshit. I don't remember her saying that throughout this episode. I think, I think, if you remember, and I could be wrong, if, if I'm wrong, don't kill me, because the episode came out today, I've only watched it once, but I think he lies to her, but then hangs up and calls her on a separate phone that's a burner to tell her the truth. And I think that's when there's a mention of the conversation. Okay. Remember, but like, but, but, like but, the but, initial time she calls him cause she's calling. And I love that when it came back from commercial, I was like, is this another commercial and people are answering the phone and you don't know who they are and they hang up and then yeah, they hang up. I got confused. And she's too. like, yeah. And, 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 and she's like, well, I knew the last number was had, had like a round thing in it. So she's right. dialing the different numbers. Um, she calls him, he tells her to hang up, he tells her to run, hangs up, and then he calls her back. Now, now I say that, I don't remember if she but reacted that, but, to but, anything but, but he that wouldn't, said. But that wouldn't be a lie, though, if he tells her to run. I don't know if that would, because that, 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 that's, that's a different type of statement. I don't know if that would, because I don't remember her having a reaction to it. I, I don't remember, but, so, I, but, but I'm I saying, just, if but it I think, happened... Because I think that was a deliberate choice. I, I, I'm, you know what, until proven otherwise, or, or until I rewatch it, you know what? Between now and the next podcast, I will rewatch it because I'm curious because I think that might have been a deliberate, a very deliberate decision. It's like, hey, her superpower, she's not going to use it. It's not going to come into play in this episode. You know, it, it's kind of like, it. you know, it's like, oh, God, it's like this. It's like this really annoying 80s movie I watched for a podcast I have to record tomorrow, which involves someone being a wolf. And in the final scene, it's like, and I went, I oh, you know what? I bet he's not going to be the wolf in this whole scene because maybe they want to save on makeup. I don't know. And he wasn't, you know, why did I bring that up? <laughs> anyway, um, 
The only other things I want to, I, I would I want to mention about the episode, I, I love the twists of it and, you know, the, the eventual what happens with, with the Benjamin Bratt character, I, I think is really kind of, there, there's so much good that he does in this, in this season, in this episode specifically. That really weird thing he does in the car with the lyrics, with, you know, the, with the hook. And it, it goes on for a really long time. <laughs> And that's that's when she gets that's where he gets like a real reaction out of her. <laughs> he really is like a fucking horrible person or something. She says to him, "I'm going that I'm trying to imagine the table read <laughs> and and, going, and them all cracking up that I can't believe you're you're making me do this whole thing. That's amazing. I, oh, and, and it goes on and on and on, and it, it it's and at first, I mean, I was like. I know these words from somewhere. Yeah. Like, what is it? And, and then, you know, it gets to it and it it's again, it it's sort of the, the theater of the absurd that he quotes like almost all the lyrics to the hook and you have a, and then you have a reference to the conversation. I mean, it brings together like it, not to say that, you know, the hook by blues traveler is, you know, the, the least of art, but some people may not love it. It's, it's more pop art, but conversation is, you know, fine art. Um, but to, to bring together these, these big elements that are that far apart, really, really, really creative. And I guess if, if, since we're sort of starting to wrap up, I, I think the last thing I'd like to say that I really liked about this show is, um, this is uh, well. You could talk about that, but um, the, the I like that a lot of the action is sort of in small town, out of the way places. It's not in big cities. Like she's intentionally going to like small little places, um, sort of off the grid, and you're sort of seeing cinematography and, and depictions of places that you don't see in a lot of, of TV shows now, you know, like it's like, you might see Jim Rockford jump in his car and drive out of town to do an investigation and be out, you know, somewhere in a trailer park or something. Um, but this show is sort of centered in, I don't want to say rural, but let's just say maybe a more uh, some of the more forgotten parts of America and some of the more distant off the grid places. And I, and I really like that. You know, I like that shit mountain is sort of established as a community into itself that, that the, the second episode that that sort of town is, is a place unto itself. And, um, so I, I really like that as a device for the way they tell the stories. And and so, um, you know, I, I, this is a show I was excited about, but it far exceeded my expectations. It, it definitely is top tier TV, Scott, um, <laughs> just so you know, um, but yeah, yeah. loved it, loved it. Hope the listeners loved it. If you have feedback, please send us feedback about what you thought any ideas, theories you had, but, but I absolutely loved it. And I really enjoyed talking about it. 
Uh, absolutely. The the thing with the the, the more out of the way locations, I, I for me that just goes back to one of the conceits of the show that they're that they're basically lifting the idea of the person on the run trying to stay off the grid kind of thing. Right. Even though nowadays staying off the grid is more re- referencing you know the internet and whatever, but this goes back to the the like the two shows I mentioned specifically. Um, and I say that because I, if I'm not mistaken, Rand Johnson himself has actually referred to those two shows specifically, The Fugitive and uh, what was a version of The Fugitive 10 years later, The Incredible Hulk, except for when you get to the final episode of The Fugitive, because I've actually seen it all. Uh, thank you, A&E, back in the early 90s. Um, it was always little small, rural, weird little towns and everything. He wasn't going like, oh, and now I'm in Chicago, and now I'm in right. you know, New York. No, he was never in New York. Although, part of me thinks, you know, he could have probably gotten lost in New York. Um, there, 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 I, I love the reset at the end of the episode. Like, oh, okay, now we know what the, uh, the through line is going to be for the next season. Where, as, as the Rail Perlman character, um, uh, Beatrix Hasp says, you know, it's not just the one guy in pursuit of her, her who, who actually had a special, you know, a- affection for her. It's the five families. We're all modern and we're going to kill whatever. And I, love, and I love that she doesn't go along with the deal, of course, because then you really wouldn't have a show. Um, okay. I, I made a joke to you. I, I pantomimed it to you because we, we watch each other on a video screen as we record the podcast here. The dick ring was making me laugh because I loved it's on her finger, it's off her finger. Oh my gosh, it got back on her finger again. Yeah. That's such a great gag. And the fact that that's what pokes him in the eye at the end. It's, it's like, if you had told me, if, if, if we're watching the very first episode, I was like, hey, you know how she's going to catch him? <laughs> she's going to stick a plastic dick in his eye. Yeah. <laughs> you probably yeah. Would, like, wait, what? No. Brilliant storytelling, lovely performances. Chain, my opinion about Natasha Leone has changed dramatically. I did like Russian Doll, although I think the second season is a bit much and I don't think it's as good as the first season. And I, 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 I start to get really weary of Natasha Leone. She reminds me of any number of people I could have been friends with back in the day, back when I would hang out in Manhattan more often, quite frankly. But she's really won me over in such a big way with this series and, and her performance in it. And by the way, the fact that she kind of, I noticed very, very subtly that she went from, you know, either cigarette or the occasional vape to something which is like, I don't know if it was like, oh, it was like a little mini cigar, like almost like a cheroot for a while there towards the end, which made me go, oh, now you're really getting into the Columbo of it because he had a cigar, not cigarette. Someone said, oh, he's always smoking cigarettes. Like, no, no, no. Columbo smoked a cigar. He didn't smoke cigarettes. Anyway, let's end it there because we went a little longer than I expected, but I realized we love Poker Face so much it was an entire season. It, it deserved it. Um, I think. Uh, looking back, we might actually have this podcast. It might be nice. It might be like, the first hour is Perry Mason, second hour is Poker Face. I'm good with that. And hopefully you guys were good with it. And if you enjoyed this podcast, guess what? You'll also enjoy hanging out on our Facebook page, which is the Serious TV Drama Podcast page, where you can like the page and join the conversation about shows like Poker Face and Perry Mason. And that's where you can give us feedback or, or leave comments throughout the week about shows like Perry Mason. And you know, if you say something which is really kind of interesting, maybe one of us will bring it up. Do I think that'll happen? Probably won't. But, you know, I'm, I'm, we're putting it out there. We, we wouldn't mind. It would be kind of cool, kind of different. Anyway, um, 
You can find this podcast on any number of podcast platforms. Guess what? You know, you can also find that other one I do called Scott Forgot the 80s. That's on every podcast platform because I actually care about that one. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Anyway, <laughs> but, but if you want to just find everything, just go to podbean.com. If you type in Scott Forgot, you'll find the other one. If you type in Serious TV Drama, you'll find this one. And you can find, and if you find this one, you can find Good Lord, 370 episodes of this crap. There's actually like 20 or 30 good ones. Uh, beyond that, you can follow us on, you can follow us on Instagram. I recently actually put a bunch of pictures there because I hadn't done it since October. Um, on Instagram, we're known as Serious TV Drama is One Word. On Twitter, you can follow us at STVD Podcast. STVD as in Serious TV Drama. We will be back next week with the latest episode of Perry Mason. And I'm either just say it on the podcast because uh, I have a firm commitment we're going to do this. Later this month, this podcast will again expand to cover another series, but it's going to be a series that's going to be moving forward also in its final season. And that series is, I'm so excited, we're going to be talking about Succession. That's right. Every podcast, every week, you're going to get Perry Mason. And we're going to get succession. I don't know which one we're going to talk about first. Maybe we'll switch it from week to week. Who knows? Actually, I think I know which one we're going to talk about first, but we'll see. Anyway, so that's something to look forward to. For those of you who watch both shows, oh, it's such a treat. And for those of you who only watch one or the other, you know what? You should watch both. Otherwise, just figure out which one to listen to and then ignore the rest. I don't know. So... Uh, I mean, you know, maybe we'll flip a coin or a poker chip like like what Detective Holcomb does to, to figure out which one we'll do. Okay, with all that said, Brian, it was great uh, being able to hang out on a podcast with you once again and see your your smiling, not so cherubic face over there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was gonna say I, I was gonna try to because I've come up with such a nice way to end. The Scott Forgot the 80s podcast. By the way, if you again, you can look for it. Just remember Scott's about a 1T. Anyway, um, just put Scott Forgot. You'll find it everywhere. But I, I was going to come up with a tagline to end the Perry Mason podcast. <laughs> you know, I was going, oh, the defense rest or court is adjourned. Or then I realized, hey, <laughs> trying too hard, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so well, just, just, just remember if Charlie shows up in your town, you're in trouble. Oh, and, I'm in such trouble. <laughs> and if 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 Scott if Scott keeps talking about Scott forgot the '80s and and me being the long lost stop, you know stepson, <laughs> I might be the little Ray ha- little Ray Howery character. There might be a, a Charlie in our future. So, okay, with that odd. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta figure. Wait, <laughs> it took almost two hours for me to figure out something I'm gonna edit out of the podcast. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, it was great having you here. Uh, great being able to talk about Perry Mason again, and great to finally get to talk about Poker Face as well. Um, I think this was as entertaining as fuck all, and I hope everyone enjoys it. Till next time, we'll see you later. See ya. Mm-hmm.